All right, everybody, it is a Smokey and the Bandit Sunday, which means we've got a long way to go, Andy. There's a whole generation that doesn't even know that movie, but I'm glad, I'm glad y'all here. So we got seven chapters to go through, and I plan on reading every word. So let's go ahead and pray right now, get right to it, and we'll jump into our lesson for the day. Jesus, I thank you so much that we can learn from these ancient stories, and not just like in a casual way, but really they reveal human nature, they reveal your divine plan, they reveal our calling, and how we're to engage and integrate into the world in such a way that we bring blessing to all the families of the earth. As I pray that you teach us today, you work in us today, and you challenge us today. And so we thank you and praise you. Your good and kind name we celebrate now. And everybody said, amen. Awesome. All right. So I have realized recently that I'm a weird Christian. Now, some of you go, finally, he's realized it. We've known this for a long time. Now, here's what I mean by this. I'm a weird Christian because I think we all, when we approach this library, which I think the Bible really is a library. It's not just a book, but it's a library of all these ideas. But when we approach that as individuals, we all would admit that there's some parts that we kind of gravitate to more than others, just kind of based on our internal disposition or whatever else. And so for me, what makes me a little weird is my first go-to is always the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Because there's something about God came into the world and he gave us a roadmap. I want to know how that works. So I love the Gospels. But then my next favorite go-to, and many of you know, is Ecclesiastes. And I love that because that's the one dude in the Bible that says, yep, life's not fair, get over it, right? And I'm like, that resonates with me. He's kind of a pessimist. I'm a pessimist. I like that dude. But then the next chunk for me as a Christian, weirdly enough, is all of the Hebrew scriptures. And then kind of last is like Acts to the book of Revelation. So New Testament's cool, but for whatever reason, I'm really drawn to that Old Covenant, that Hebrew Testament. And I think in part because a lot of those lives are messy. I, I think there's a lot of narratives there where you can kind of just work it over time and again and everything else. And so I, I'm just drawn to that place. It was from that that back in 2017, uh, we decided to do this kind of on-again, off-again exploration of the first five works of the Hebrew Scriptures. As Christians, we call that the Pentateuch, which literally means like five vessels or like five cases. It would be cases to put the five scrolls of Moses in there. But the Hebrews saw this as the Torah. Now, you can say Torah, but if you want to sound cool, you say Torah, right? You kind of throw that accent in there that you don't really have, but use it anyway, right? So uh, we decided we were going to do that. And so we've been on this journey to explore all of that. And now, finally, we're at the last of the works of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, or Davrim, as they call it in Hebrew. This final chronicle of the words, the stuff, the things that Moses is giving to the second generation that's getting ready to enter kind of into the promised land, right? They're going to enter into this idea that I've been calling New Eden because I think that's much of the agenda. And it's in these final words that themes are prevalent in that work. In fact, last week I said there's five themes. I've increased it to six. I really should have had six last week, but as I thought about it more, we want to understand that all of this work is about things like Lord, love, listen, this idea of learning, land, and life. 
And those words are all integrated, right? So if you really love the Lord, you're going to listen to the Lord. And if you're really listening, you're going to love. And then from that, you're going to learn God's wisdom so that you have a life in the land that is blessed by God. All of these things come up again and again and again throughout this work of Moses. And what he's doing is he's preparing by God's hand a nation state to be a people that blesses all the other peoples of the earth. And so this is a launch point to God's reclamation project for the entire planet. And so in essence, the promised land is a new Eden. They're kind of like a new Adam and Eve, and they're supposed to go and expand the borders of what God is doing. And so then in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving a series of speeches, three speeches, in fact. Last week, we looked at the first speech, and that was just kind of getting them to think about where they've come from. But today's speech is all about giving them focus, how they're to be unique and distinct as a nation, not just how they're to be devout, not just how they're to be dogmatic, but rather how they're to live in such a way that they integrate the truths of God so that they are wise and intelligent and compelling, and the other nations say, whatever you got, we want. Your God is the God we desire. How do we do this thing that you're doing? Like, that's their design. But I can tell you what, one of the toughest things is nation building. In fact, this last year, I read the giant biography on Alexander Hamilton. Fascinating book. Our founding fathers, they were nuts, man. They were crazy when it came to interpersonal relationships. Like, you read that stuff. I mean, you think some politicians get on Twitter and say crazy stuff. You should go back and read what those guys said about each other, right? If they would have had Twitter, they would have just lit it up. And by the way, it'll never be X. It's Twitter, their tweets. That's what it is. All right. But they would just go after each other, and they debated everything. They fought about how many delegates, they fought about if you should have senators or no senators, how you do representatives. They fought about maybe we should have a king again. That worked last time, maybe it'll work this time. You know, They had all kinds of stuff. And one of the things they really fought about was actually the Constitution. You know, the first 10 amendments there, the Bill of Rights, they did fight about that. We always think they're all getting along and it all just came together so easily. No, they spent years fighting. And part of the reason is, is because what they were trying to figure out is, okay, we're a nation of freedoms. Now we got to create some rules about freedoms, right? That's strange. Like it's about liberty, and we got to figure out instantly how to create legislation for liberty. And so there's a lot of stuff. But the brilliance of what they did is they took those amendments and made them very brief, very short, different than statutes or laws where you read them and you just glaze over and you go, I don't know, I'll vote, no, I don't know. It's too many words. But the amendments were super lightweight. And this was by design because it's meant to be something where the founder said, we want every generation to have to wrestle with this. This is why there's still debates today and the Supreme Court is divided on issues of the Constitution because it's just not exhaustive. It's lightweight and portable, so you ponder. Well, before the nation was doing this, before the founders were trying to figure out the Bill of Rights, God had formed a nation, and he gives them not rights, but responsibilities. And so if you're taking notes with us this morning, that's the first point in your notes. God gives the Bill of Responsibilities. Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Moses called to all the people of Israel to call them together, and he said, Listen carefully, Israel. Hear the decrees and regulations that I'm giving you today so that you learn from them and obey them. The Lord God made a covenant with us at Mount Sinai. The Lord did not make his covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive today. The point being, God's always engaged in that process for every generation. He's active in that generation. 
says, at the mountain, the Lord spoke to you face to face from the heart of the fire. And I stood as an intermediary between you and the Lord, and you were afraid of the fire and did not want to approach the mountain. And he spoke to me, and I passed his words on to you. This is what he said. And from there, Moses goes on to reiterate the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words of Moses, literally. And this is kind of a 2.0 version. Now, when you think about the Ten Commandments, you probably think about pictures like these up here, right? Charlton Heston, whoa, right? And, and stones were like, they're gray, and they're kind of rounded at the top, and there's five commands on one and five commands on the other. And I love the cartoon one of God there because, okay, or of Moses, rather, because it, the dude's 80 at that point. You're not lifting 200 pounds of slab over your head like you can do a, like a military press, right? Dude's old, he's gonna be like, yeah, right? This is some heavy stuff. But, but these are the images we have of the Ten Commandments. But the problem is with this, that's not the Hebrew tradition. That's kind of a Christianized kind of, I don't know, almost like, like kind of a mythological version of maybe what those look like. But inside the Talmud, which is kind of the gathered writings and thoughts of rabbinical tradition handed down through the years, they actually describe what they think the Ten Commandments actually look like. And it was a lot more like that right there, which seems a little weird and you don't anticipate it. Uh, but in Exodus 24, we see that underneath the feet of God at the throne were stones of sapphire. And so they believe that literally God repurposes two of those sapphire stones to be the stones of the covenant. The other thing we see later in Deuteronomy chapter 32, I think it is, is that the, the tablets themselves or the stones have the commandments on both sides. Or even the Hebrew's a little ambiguous. It might be on all sides, right? But at least for sure, both sides have this. And the size is pretty small, right? About 18 inches by 18 inches by 9 inches, which is three hand breadths and a hand and a half for each stone. But each stone is a contract, one for God and one for the people. But when they go to the Ark of the Covenant, they're put together and placed in the Ark, and they look more like a cube inside that space. And what I love about this is when you go to the book of Revelation, which is very Hebrew Testament kind of written with images, you see the city of God as a cube. And the Israelites believe that the instruction of God was also a cube in the box. And so these are just some fun facts to get us realizing that some of our assumptions about the code may not be exactly what things were. Now, we don't know for sure if this is exactly the specs and the size and the color and everything else, but when you look at ancient Near Eastern cultures, some of their most important like legislation, legislation or, or concepts were put on things like obelisks or other interesting geometric shapes that were heavy and, and, and kind of of substance. And in the same way, God's got a portable nation, and so he's like, now we're going to do a portable thing, but it's going to be in this particular format here. Now, in this, here's some other fun facts, I think, about the Ten Commandments. First fun fact, if you were to read your entire Bible beginning to end, there's only one time ever you're going to find where God in heaven personally writes anything down. It's the Ten Commandments. It is the one space where he literally inscribes by his own hand those ten codes. Moses doesn't write those the first time. 
Now there's a second time after those get smashed and another set is made. There's some debate between Deuteronomy and Exodus. Did God write again those or did Moses write those as he was transcribing from God? There's a debate there. We don't have time for that. But it's just to realize that, you know what? Rarely does God write stuff down by his own hand, but this is the place. And so you go, wow, that must be pretty important. Now I know some of you Sunday school people are like, but I know in Deuteronomy there's this finger that writes on the, or in Daniel rather, finger writes on the wall. You go back and look, not God's finger, some other finger. I don't know whose finger, but it's not God's finger that writes on the wall. It's the only time God writes. I think that's kind of cool. Here's another one. This is just sort of, I'm curious. How many realize that there are two different times in the Old Testament that God gives the Ten Commandments? How many people knew that? Awesome. How many people realize that they're different? Dun, dun, dun. All right, here's the deal. They're not dramatically different, but they're different. So in Exodus 20, that's the first iteration. And now in Deuteronomy 5, it's the second iteration. And I'll just bring up a side-by-side -side comparison, not that you can read it, because I'm not asking you to read it. I know it's too small, right, for our old eyes in particular. But the Deuteronomy 5 section gives you some of the other stuff or the difference so like when it comes to Sabbath, it's different. In Exodus he, says, Exodus, he says, keep the Sabbath because I rested on the seventh day. That's completely dropped in Deuteronomy. And instead it's, hey, remember the Sabbath because I liberated you from slavery in Egypt. So it's a change. There are some other little changes as well in there related to kind of honoring parents and some of the motivations there, also on coveting and some of the motivations there. It's just subtle changes. And the point isn't so you go, oh, so... Moses is just doing his own thing now. No, Moses is teaching us a really valuable lesson about the role of this idea called Torah. Right? As a matter of fact, just another fun fact, uh, that word Torah, it really shouldn't be translated law. There's really not a Hebrew word for law as we understand it today. It really is instruction. And what this is kind of demonstrating as he goes and gives this instruction to the second generation is that with every generation, you should approach this this these words of God, these ideas of God in a fresh way, right? Figuring out how it matters to this generation, and it may matter differently than it did to the previous generation. And you should, every single generation, wrestle through what God is saying and how it applies to you. And so that's exactly what he displays as he kind of reiterates these ten commands. It's like, Israel, now here's what you need to understand about Sabbath. Different than the first generation, but really pertinent to the second generation. And on coveting, let's not just talk about coveting, but even desire inside of coveting. So not just the action of coveting, but the inner disposition of wanting to desire somebody else's stuff. He's like, just don't go down that road. And so that's also a heart that's revealed in here. here here's another one. This is a little bit more of a polling thing. Uh, how many believe that the Ten Commandments are a framework that every culture should embrace as the way that you establish morality in a society? How many would believe that? It's okay, you don't have to be sheepish, I would agree, right? Now, how many of you feel you could come up here and reiterate all Ten Commands by heart, in order? Probably not many of us, and I get it, I don't blame you. Years ago when I lived in Spokane, there was a church that was kind of very active politically, and they were really pushing for the Ten Commandments to be in classrooms and in courthouses and all this stuff, and I remember hearing about this on the news, so I actually sent a film crew to that church to quiz people on that thing, during a Sunday morning. So the crew would say, hey, do you believe the Ten Commandments should be public? Yes, they're important for foundations of life. Can you actually recite them? 
and nobody could do it. I know that was punkish on my part. That was when I was more difficult back in the day. I would not do that now, right? But it's that idea that we go, they're so important, but we don't really understand what they are. So let's look, bring them up here really quick. Here's the 10, the 10 words of instruction. So the first four are directly related to God, though the fourth begins to kind of move from God to people. Then the fifth is about family, and then it goes into all the other people around our lives. Here's some interesting things about the Ten Commandments. First of all, notice that the greatest commandment is not reflected here. There's nothing about love, whether it be God or neighbor. Not directly. But that's kind of the brilliance of it. There's like this great command, love God, love your neighbor, and then what the ten do is figure out how to play that out. How to exercise it. Now another thing about these ten is that those bottom six, they're not novel or new to the world of Moses or the world of the Israelites. Those had been laws and other surrounding societies for a thousand years before. So that's not fresh and new. But what's fresh and new are the first four as they relate to the next six, right? Every other place had multiple gods. God's like, no, I'm the one true God. You will worship only me. And they all make graven images and idols and iconicize their gods. You cannot put me in that box. And so that's number two. Number three, when it comes to my name, revere it. That's why even today when we did the scripture reading, it said Adonai. In the text, it actually says Yahweh, but, but, but we did it in the Hebrew spirit which says, I'm not even going to utter the name Yahweh out loud because that's not reverent enough. I can't be reverent enough to say it. So they replace it with Adonai for that purpose. The other part of this idea of not using the Lord's name in vain is just simply don't apply his name to your life and then live carelessly, which is good for us as Christians because we're literally applying the name Christ to our branding. And so we want to wear that name well. And then when it comes to the day of rest he's like that's a day of reflection that's a day of reverence that's applied not just to our relationship to god but our relationship to others he says on that day don't work your animals don't work your slaves don't work your kids take a day and then there's the rest of the commands again all ways that we can extend grace to our neighbors and so these 10 pieces of code they deal with all the areas of life the spiritual the familial and the social. Some are saying this is what you should do. Many are saying this is what you should avoid. And, and I love it even in the spirit, when it gets to the end, there's this idea of kind of escalation, right? It kind of moves in a direction. Don't take life, don't take someone else's spouse, don't take someone else's stuff. Don't engage in acts against your neighbor, words against your neighbor, or attitudes against your neighbor. And so while the code itself never addresses love God and love neighbor, everything about it is an application of loving God and loving your neighbor. And so, verse 32, Moses told the people, you must be careful to obey all the commands the Lord your God has given you. Follow the instructions in every detail. Stay on the path that the Lord your God has commanded you to follow. Then you will live long and prosperous lives in the land you are about to enter and occupy. Again, the heart here is not about just legislation. It's about direction. This isn't just rules, but it's a path that he wants them to live by, right? To exercise. But it's to flow from something deeper. And the deeper thing is number two in your notes. It's the heart of true religion, which goes into chapter 6. So chapter 5, Moses reminds them, God gave codes, we want to follow those codes, but it must come from something deeper within us. 
Thus he says the most popular, famous passage in all of the Hebrew scriptures for the Jewish population. He says, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your forehead as a reminder. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the Shema, the central confession of the people of Israel. Like, this is the thing you know. This is their jam. This is their national anthem or their pledge of allegiance, if you will. If you're creating a country, this is what they rally around. It is here that we get half of the greatest commandment. The other half is in Leviticus. So love God and then love your neighbor. And then in this, you see all those trigger words. Lord, love, learn. It's all in there. In this chapter, all of those words appear and I look at this and I go, this is the most brilliant tweet ever. It's so compact, right? Love. Like, love God. And he says, with what? All your heart, right? All your faculty that is in you. Like, you lean into that. To love God means, you know what? I'm going to uplift that as what is good in my heart. I'm going to seek to suppress and deal with and repent of and drive out that which is bad because I am fully committed to my God. He says, not just with all your heart, but all of your soul, which for the Hebrews is about life. He's like, be willing to love God so much that you will give up your life, your soul, in loyalty and allegiance to him. And then love him with all of your strength, which isn't just like your, your fortitude, but it's with all of your faculties. So your strength as an Israelite would be your wealth, your property, your skills, right? Your aptitudes. It's like this full investment. It's a complete giving of oneself to the path that God has and this committed integration of all that God cares about into one's life. In fact, this is why he says, uh, repeat them. And he says, repeat them everywhere. That's his point. At home, in town, at night, in the morning. That's everything. So as you're going through life, and I think in the modern equivalent as Christians, as you're going through life, you're, you're always looking at things and going, uh, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Where would Jesus sit? How would Jesus invest? What would Jesus comment on? What would Jesus not comment on? That's a great one right there. Um, like, so many things where you're just constantly thinking, how can I bring Jesus to the equation of this? That's the heart of this idea. And then he says, really live these things out. As an individual, that's what he means by saying, bind them to your hand and your head. It's like, as a person, you're thinking and you're doing God's agenda. And then he says, and when it comes to the doorposts, you want your home to be like that. That doorpost is your, your abode, your casa. But then also on the gates, and that's your city. Right? Houses didn't have gates, cities had gates. And, and so the idea is like, hey, as you're going into this land, Right? It's going to be very easy to lose track of what the priorities are. But you need to make sure that you are immersed in what God desires. You are doing what God wants to do because you are to be the nation that rescues and sees redemption for all other nations. So focus, listen, love your Lord. He says, why do you want to do this? He says, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so we, he can continue to bless us and to preserve our lives as he has done to this day. 
for we will be counted as righteous when we obey the commands the Lord our God has given to us. Counted as righteous is, again, this idea of application. And, and the application that God is getting at in this whole thing is I want you to display true love for me and others and true mercy and true justness. That's the foundation of all Israelite holiness, love displayed and mercy and justice. So that's how they're gonna be truly righteous. But the result of that is that they will be blessable, blessed by God. And this idea of blessable or blessability, words that I like to make up sometimes, um, it, it, it's central, I think, to my thinking when I reflect on this. And here's what I mean by this. So a number of years ago, before we were Redemption Church, we were known as Duval Church. And as Duval Church, we were part of a denomination, and we wanted at one point to seek to, to remove ourselves or to leave the denomination. And it was in that space that the denominational leaders came, and they sat down with us, and they said, if you try this, it will get really ugly really fast for you. To which when we heard that, we thought, and this is why we should leave, Right? Because it's like, it's, you're not sitting down with the religious leaders, you're sitting down with the mafia. It's kind of the way it fell, right? You're like, oh my goodness, what are we getting into here? But it was in that time when we knew we were going to begin to move that direction that we had this very big discussion about everything we do, every next step we take, it must be blessable. In other words, every step we take, we must do the next right thing, not the expedient thing, not the vengeful thing, not the frustrated thing, not the human thing, we got to do the Jesus thing. If we are to make it through and be healthy on the other side, we must be blessable. And so we just owned the Sermon on the Mount. So it's like, hey, they don't want good for us, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray for them, we're going to love them, we're going to bless them, we're going to do good to them. We just, that's our jam, that's what we're doing. And I really think it was that season of saying, what does it mean to be blessable? And to maintain that heart and not fall into the way humans do stuff, but to fight to do Jesus' best. And now I look and I go, we got a building down on 203 that's getting ready to be moved into really soon. Raising incredible funds by your generosity. Again, I think the church has just fought for blessability for years and years and years. And my prayer is we continue to do that because that's the heart of what is being revealed here. When you seek to do it God's way with God's heart, there is blessing. Now, I want to be clear. Not every time are the blessings what you would hope to receive or what you would prescribe for yourself. Right? You can do the next right thing and it turns out terribly bad in a earthly context. But you know what? God is blessed for you doing it. And I believe when we do the next right thing, we're blessed in our hearts and in our soul for doing it. And I believe even as people watch our lives, they're blessed for what they see when we respond as Jesus would want us to in the challenges of life. And so Moses just lays it out there and says, all right, nation, if you want to be blessable, if you want to stay with God, you want him to really honor you and do things for you, then you got to stay close to him. And so Israel has the equivalent of their Pledge of Allegiance at this point, the Shema, and the Bill of Rights, which is the Ten Commandments. What they don't have is land. They don't have a country space yet, right? And so chapter 7 to 11 is all about the land. And here Moses is going to give some important reminders as they prepare for their invasion. The first is this reminder of divine favor, and that's number three in your notes. The reminder of divine favor. And here's the thing. When Israel goes into the land, it will be a very bloody invasion. In fact, one of our elders last week said to me, it's kind of ISIS-level stuff at times. Like, it's troubling when you read it. You don't know what to do with it. 
but, but if I try to get out of just the troubling issues of it, and I think about what tends to happen when you're going into this conflict kind of environment, is it's very easy for your side to think, we're the good guys, and you're the bad guys. And, and we demonize you, and we idolize us. And the reason we're winning, and we will win, is because we're better and you're worse. That's going to be the temptation of Israel. They're going to start to get really big and really strong and think they're really awesome, and they're going to forget that all of this comes not because they're so cool, but because God has a plan, and God is good. And so he wants to kind of chop them down to size a little bit and remind them of something. And so after kind of initially saying, here's what you're up against, here's the people you're facing, here's how they worship other gods, and it makes all kinds of sinful mess, he says, but I want you to remember the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you are the most numerous of the other nations, for you're the smallest of all the nations. You're like the runts of the world. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and was keeping the oath he swore to your ancestors, right? That's why God rescued you from Pharaoh. And see, this is going to be really, really critical for them to realize that this whole advancement, their victories, is not because of their goodness. It's just because of God's grace. They're not rad. He's just righteous and doing a thing in his faithfulness. But I think that's a good lesson right there for us, right? Think about it. What is the distinctive of the Christian religion over all other religions? You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't maintain it. You don't keep yourself in it. It is solely the grace of God. We should be the most humbled people because we realize that we are good at sin, and yet God is good at redemption and rescue. And he storms into our life, kicks in the door of our sin, rescues us in his grace, and therefore, man, we should err on the side of grace more than anybody. We should be the most generous, the most grace-filled, the most kind, Right? That's what our space should be. And that's why God is telling Israel this now. Like, don't get so big in your britches that you think this is all you. It's not you. He says, it's me and my faithfulness to you. That's what makes this work. And so it's just that reminder that humility and dependency is, is really to be the place that we, we dwell as the people of God. Right? Pride is ever at the door. We're awesome at being judgmental. Like, awesome. It doesn't take any work to be judgmental. It takes a lot of work to be humble. It takes a lot of yielding to God all of the time. But that is the antidote. Right? To just be dependent, to be humble, to be reminded of the fact that it is the goodness of God. It is not the goodness of me. This leads then, Moses, to a rather long warning. It takes up a few chapters. But it's the warning of self-reliance. The warning of self-reliance. He says, starting in chapter 8, Be careful to obey all the commands I'm giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord has sworn to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. The answer is, that's why your parents are all dead. They didn't, but this is your chance to do it right. Says, yet he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So then, obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Right there, I know you all went, oh, Jesus quoted that. Right? And he did. 
Another fun fact, of all of the Old Testament works, the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy more than any other. That was his go-to, right? And you see this is so valuable here. He went to that in his time of trial, and so we should remember, man, everything comes from God. But why the reminder? He says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, flowing with streams and pools of water, with fountains and springs that gush out of the valleys and the hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, of figs and trees, of pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It is a land where the food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. In other words, he's saying, when God has fulfilled the equivalent of Pedro's campaign promise, all of your wildest dreams will come true. When God has done that, make sure, make sure you praise him. Make sure you remember him because he has extended blessing to you and it's his property. It's his stuff, it's his land. Here's why this is important to me. I have learned in my own life, when things are good, when life is cruising, when everything is just right in the world, that is when you tend to let your quiet time slide. That is when you're probably less relying on God and more just enjoying the stuff. It's in the hard times, the time of need, that we're probably more like, God, show up, God, I need you, God, I'm desperate. But when things are chilling, that, that's when we get a little sluggish. That's the danger, right? We start thinking we created our prosperity, we created our security, we created our legacy. We even have words for this or like phrases in our culture like uh, that person's a self-made man or a self-made woman, right? So independent. Or, or somebody says, I built this whole thing with my own two hands. There it is, right there. The sense of independence. I'm the captain of my own destiny. No, you're not. But, but we tend to kind of think in those ways. And, and so again, this is saying when everything is carefree and everything's prosperous, Moses says, that is the time to be careful. That's when you should watch out. Beware that in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord your God, who by disobeying his commands or regulations or decrees that I'm giving you today. He says, for when you become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. The very American dream <laughs> is here. Like, I want everything. He's like, be careful when you get there. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Don't forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. He gave you water. He fed you. He did this to humble you and to test you for your own good. He did all of this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth of my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful in order to fill the covenant that he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. I know that's a big chunk but you get the idea of what's being pressed here, right? It is so easy, it is so easy to think this is all by our hand, all by our ingenuity, all by our just kind of wherewithal. And he's like, man, as soon as you get there, you're in bad space. You have to remember that God gives it all to you. And not just to bless you for your own independent blessing, but he's blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others because the agenda is that all the nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so as they're moving toward the land and they're getting ready to inherit all of these things, he's just letting them know, you're gonna be tempted to forget. You're gonna be tempted to follow other gods. You're gonna be tempted to dump the 10 commandments. You're going to forget the Shema. You're, you're gonna get off the rails. And so 
remember, you are prone to be stubborn. You're, you're prone to have a stiff neck. That's what he's saying. So don't fall victim to that. Rather, what he wants to do is this final point. He wants to give them a reminder of Godward reverence. He says, and now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all your heart. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Lots of ands in there, right? And this, and this, and this. But it's so important. Because what he just did there is just abbreviated chapter 5 and 6 again. He's just reiterating, hey, don't forget. He says, look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it, they all belong to the Lord our God. He says, yet the Lord chose your ancestors as objects of his love, and he chose you, their descendants, above all other nations, as is evident today. Therefore, change your hearts and stop being stubborn. If you want blessing, man, be humble. He says, don't let your heart be deceived so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain, and the ground will fail to produce its harvest, and then you will quickly die in the good land the Lord is giving to you. In other words, he's just making the point that their faithfulness is tethered to their flourishing. And I'm going back to this idea that what Israel's designed to be is New Eden. And from New Eden, the people of Israel will go out and they will bless the other nations. That's the heart of this whole thing. And just as in Eden, where there was tension, there's a tree of life that gives you blessing, and then there's a tree of a knowledge of good and bad that will bring cursing if you eat from it. In the same way, he's saying to Israel, there is a choice that is before you. You have a good and loving God that is giving you everything you could ever desire, but what he wants is your loyalty and faithfulness and love in return. And if you do that, he will bless you. And if you fail to do that, he will curse you. Just like what happens with Eden. Verse 26, he says, Look, today I'm giving you a choice between blessing and cursing. You will be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today, but you will be cursed if you reject the commands of the Lord your God and turn away from him and worship gods you have not known before. That's always the tension for all of us. That's always the pressure point. See, this is why for me and us as a church, we talk about life is better with Jesus. I want to always kind of give a sense of what that means. See, life is better with Jesus is not just simply pie in the sky, unicorns, rainbows, and lollipops. That's not the idea. It's the belief that the way Jesus has laid out how we live, uh, the code we live by, it is better. Doing what he calls you to do, when you don't want to do that thing, it is better. Doing the upside-down, backwards kingdom stuff of Jesus, it's just better. And part of the better is that I believe it is the route to blessing. While we don't quite live in the blessing and cursing model of the Hebrew text, there is also this idea, though, that is you reap what you sow. And there's this idea that if you make the next wrong decision, it brings more bitterness to your life. Where you make the next right decision, it brings more flourishing, both for yourself and for those around you. And so kind of the heart of Deuteronomy today as we close is just that idea of saying, man, as I do life, as I live out my faith, I want to choose blessability. I want to choose God's best in my world. And so with all that said, where does Deuteronomy meet real life? Four quick points, and then we're going to wrap it up. Here's the first thing. What we learned from today, remember, God's laws were made for love. Love was not made for laws. 
This is a spin on something Jesus talks about in the New Testament when he says, uh, just remember, Sabbath was made for people. People weren't made for the Sabbath. God's primary focus for us is we love him and we love others. And in that process, we want to remember then that these laws or instructions of God are designed for us to do that well. But if we forget love and it's just about laws, we've missed the point of why God did this. Next, remember God seeks our whole person, not just the religious parts. When you lie down, when you rise up, when you're on the road, when you're at home, on your heart, mind, hands, homes, and gates, that whole thing, he wants the whole of our person Next, remember if you start to think you've built a pretty good life for yourself, repent and praise God. Like, I did this, I worked hard, I achieved. Nope, God has made it possible for us to have what we have. And then last, remember, life is better with Jesus because it's about living a blessable life as he defines it. Thus, the question is, are you living blessable to be a blessing? Are you doing what he wants you to do? so that you are an influence of wisdom and insight and care and kindness in the lives of those around you. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that as we try to race through seven chapters, that there were these waypoints, reminders of things, confrontation of our lives. In fact, right now, I, I just want to take a moment uh, as a people of yours to confess that we often are much like the people of Israel. We're much like the Hebrews, right? We can be stubborn. We can lose sight of you. We can start to think we've accomplished all of this, and we forget. We follow other idols, but we thank you that you have grace for us. And so as we confess, we also receive that deeper promise that you have set your love on us, not because of what we do, but because of who you are. Now, there may be some of you in the room this morning or some people watching online where you're like, I'm not a Christian, I don't follow God, but I want to. Today's your day, man. Today is your day to go from death to life, from decay to flourishing. That's why Jesus came into the world, right? To live, to teach, to die, to rise, to give you life, to change your life. And if you want that in your life, man, it's just a prayer where you say, Jesus, I confess my sin. I see my need for you, my need for your cross and resurrection, my need for your life. You're the life giver. And so give me life so I can love you, live for you, learn from you, right? And, and bring healing to the land that you've placed me in. If you've made that your prayer, we would love to know. There'll be a number on the screen when you open your eyes and there's a tile on our app that you can text and say, I made that decision today. We would love to know. For the rest of us, Jesus, we, we need you every day. Help us to be a humble people, to err on the side of grace, to really exude your brand. I mean, your brand is grace. I want to just have us master that. The most humble, the most generous, the most kind. I, I think about that in, in Romans 1, where it lists out all the sins of the pagans, and it gets to Romans 2, and it lists out all the sins of the religious. And it says, don't you remember that God was kind and tolerant and patient with you as he waited for you to turn from your sins? It's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. I pray that we embody that because you do that to us. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We need you. We worship you in your good name.